Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 23, Here Come the Ottonians. Here we are back on track after a week spent down in southern Tuscany in the Maremma area in the province of Grosseto. It's an area I really recommend visiting. You can find amazing little coves with crystal clear blue water, nice little hilltop fortresses, monasteries, a strange sculpture park in which an eccentric sculptress actually lived in one of her sculptures for 30 odd years, and the Roman ruins of the town of Cosa, which translates as what. This last visit prompted several days of an Abbott and Costello style what's the name of the town sketch, until everybody got a bit sick of it. Anyway, you can see an idea of what the trip was like on the YouTube page of A History of Italy as soon as we have the video edited and out, and so look out for that. Meanwhile, if you look up Orbitello on Google Maps, you can see what a very weird geographic formation it is. Uh, I personally didn't know the existence of it until I actually recently visited. So have a look at that if you have the good luck of visiting Italy once you've obviously seen all the important bits. Go and have a look at the Maremma area. So back to our story. Just a bit of a note before we start. You'll hear me repeatedly refer to the name of Guido of Provence in this episode. I actually meant Hugo, so the third husband of Marozia, the stepfather of Alberic of Rome, and the father of Lothar is Hugo, not Guido. Sorry about that. We left Rome back in the year 932 after a political and family coup in which Alberic, son of Marozia, and possibly uh, her first husband Alberic of Spoleto, but we're not 100% sure there, well, Alberic Jr. had seized power in Rome from his mother and stepfather, Guido of Provence, Guy of Provence, by rousing a mob of Romans and chasing the latter away. The handsome and imposing Alberic was made princeps, kind of lord or prince, and senator, and set up a sort of autocratic rule over Rome, in which he exercised all administrative power. His brother, Pope John XI, was as happy to comply with his brother's wishes as he had been with his mother's. So the system was set up to rule over a city that was, and in history often has been, different from other cities in Italy. For a start, there was no real middle class. In Rome at the time, you could find members of the clergy, nobles, and under them the urban plebs, with no one else in between. The priests lived on donations and inheritance, the nobles on land revenue and their family wealth, while the plebs on what the other two groups handed down. There was no industry and hardly any trade. Alberic did a pretty good job in the end of balancing the old carrot and stick. 
as he oversaw a couple of decades of unprecedented peace. He hired a sort of early police force and divided the city into twelve districts, placing a well-paid and therefore loyal militia to guard over each one. The Romans swore their loyalty to their new ruler, also because the alternative was to be exiled and to have all your possessions taken away. A true sign of the stability of his rule was that he minted coins in his own image, substituting those of Marozia and Guido. He also took over the administration of justice, which until then had been a prerogative either of the Pope, the Emperor, or the Missi Dominici, the representatives of the Emperor, a role that had been set up back in the time of Charlemagne. Alberic was successful because, despite having inherited his mother's great ambition, he also understood his limits and was happy to rule over Rome and the surrounding areas. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have any trouble from the outside. Remember his stepfather, Guido of Provence? Well, he hadn't managed to get crowned emperor, but he was king of Italy, as usual, just the northern bit, and he wanted revenge. In 933, he laid siege to the city, but he could not break it. He tried again three years later in 936, but this time his army was decimated by an outbreak of cholera. The third time around, he came up with a plan so cunning, as Blackadder said, that you could put a tail on it and call it a fox. The idea was for Guido to offer a peace deal to Alberic and to offer his daughter Alda to seal it. When the wedding came around, Guido could finally get into the city and overthrow Alberic. A kind of red wedding Game of Thrones thing, you might think. The latter, Alberic, however, was just as cunning. He was not fooled for a second. He quite happily accepted Alda as his bride, but simply didn't invite his future father-in-law to the wedding, so plot foiled. In the same year as the failed wedding coup, the Pope, John XI, the other son of Marozia, died. In his place came Leo VII, who tried to promote in the Italian church the same reform that Odo of Cluny was promoting in France. I won't go too much into it, but basically they were trying to get a more strict Benedictine practice into the monasteries. Alberic was fine with Leo trying to reform the church, as long as he didn't try to interfere with the politics of Rome. Unfortunately for Leo, he died only three years later, in 939, and nothing makes promoting a church reform more complicated than dying. In Leo's place came another Stephen, the eighth this time. He was not content to stick to the matters of the church and wanted to get back to a situation where the Pope was both the spiritual and political leader, and he hatched a plot to overthrow Alberic, but he was discovered and imprisoned. With all the fun games going on, the year 941 rolled around, and our old mate Guido thought he'd have another go at getting into Rome. He did, and once again he failed. This time, while he was messing around down in Rome, the nobles in Lombardy rebelled and substituted him with another Berengarius, this time not of Friuli but of Ivrea, which is 
not confusing at all, you know, all of these Berengariuses and Guidos, but anyway. Now, Guido was able to sort things out when he came back up, so Berengarius had to run for it. Where did he go? Well, he headed north, to what by then had become Germany, or some form of Germany, after the definitive collapse of the Carolingian Empire, and he sought refuge with a certain king of Saxon origin called Otto. Now, like with Charlemagne, loads and loads and loads has been said and written about Otto I of Germany, so we won't go too much in-depth here. The short version is that the Saxons had managed to unite a good part of what is Germany today under a single crown, thanks particularly to the influence of Otto I's father, Henry I, also known as the Fowler, due to his passion for hunting. In particular, his prestige came from his victory over the Hungarians at the Battle of Puchen in 919. He had managed to unite the German peoples and get his son Otto to be recognized as king, which he was in 936. If you want to hear someone talk about the Ottonians who actually knows what they're talking about, you can go over to the History of Germany podcast, where Travis Dow has a little mini-series on them. So, we had Berengarius hanging and chilling with Otto up in Germany, when, in 945, news reached the court that there was, once again, trouble in northern Italy. Berengarius borrowed an army of Saxons from Otto and made his way down to see if he couldn't take advantage of the situation. Once there, he met with the son of Guido, Lothar, who actually just asked to be left the crown of the kingdom of Italy, and Berengarius accepted. I thought that was quite nice for a change, Lothar saying, Hi there, Barry. Would you mind terribly just if I keep the crown and be king? And then Berengarius would say, Well, go on then, you go ahead. The real reason was probably simply the fact that Berengarius had analysed the situation and concluded that he was in no real position to oppose Lothar. However, he didn't really have to wait that long. The first to go was Lothar's father, Guido of Provence, who died back in Provence, apparently due to a bad indigestion of dried figs, and apparently in the arms of a waitress. He never did get back into Rome, although definitely not from lack of trying. Then, very conveniently, perhaps too conveniently, Lothar himself also died in 950, probably poisoned by Berengarius. That same year, on the 15th of December, Berengarius of Ivrea was finally crowned king, along with his son, Adalbert. Now, aside from a crown, Lothar, son of Guido, had also left a wife behind, Adelaide, who was famous for being a great beauty. Adalbert tried to have a go, but she wasn't interested, so he went into a if-I-can't-have-you-no-one-can-hissy-fit and locked the poor damsel up in a fortress on Lake Garda. Luckily for her, she managed to escape and make her way down to Canossa in the Emilia region, on the other side of the Apennines from Tuscany. Now, 
Please take a moment to remember the name of this place, Canossa, C-A-N-O-S-S-A, because it is important for three reasons. Well, to me at least, it's only actually really important for one reason. The first is because it's just round the corner from where I live, a lovely 15-minute drive. The second is that it was the place my father was born in an inn. My nonna, my grandmother, was the innkeeper. The third is that around a hundred years or so from the time we're talking about now, it would become the setting for one of the most significant moments of the struggle between the Pope and the emperors, and the home of one of the most powerful women in medieval Italy. But that's all to come. While we are in the area, let me stop a minute just to remind you that basically not only every region of Italy, not only every province, not every city, not every comune, every municipality, but every little corner of the country has some claim to fame or contribution in art, in history, and especially in food. Now, you may have eaten our claim to fame probably this very day, or may have done sometime this week at least, and that is... Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, which vulgarly is known as Parmesan cheese, but that is completely and totally wrong, wrong, wrong. The true stuff is called Parmigiano-Reggiano, the whole thing. It just ended up being called Parmesan because, well, Parma starts with a P and we start with an R, so in alphabetical order we come afterwards. But most of the stuff is produced on our side of the Insa River, which divides the provinces of Reggio and Parma. So be careful when you come to Reggio Emilia and remember whose cheese you're talking about. Now, on a side note, these little quirks could be one of the things I will be talking about in an upcoming program I'd like to launch for my Patreon supporters, we're almost there, I think, so possibly over the summer. Anyway, once Adelaide was safely in Canossa, she sent to Otto for help. Now, he was a bachelor at the time, and his mum was on his case to get married. When are you going to settle down and find a nice girl? When am I going to get grandkids? And so on. And just then came this request from a beautiful damsel in distress. So down he came with an army he freed Adelaide, took her off to Bavia to marry her, and while he was at it, in 951, he crowned himself king, so there would be no more messing around. Or at least he hoped. This was the start of three centuries of German control over northern Italy. It was also the second step in the new and exciting Become a Holy Roman Emperor checklist. If you want to be a Holy Roman Emperor, you only have to follow three simple steps. Number one, get elected King of Germany by the German nobility. Two, get crowned King of Italy, not really all of Italy, but the northern part in Pavia or in Milan. And part three, get crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope. Easy peasy. So, while he was in the area, Otto also sent the Bishop of Mainz down to start talks with the Pope. But Alberic, who was still in the saddle, had control over the Pope and he wasn't having it and didn't even let him into the city. Now we're back in Rome. Let's leave the Germans for a moment and see how things are going there. In a few words, not too bad. 
the city was going through over twenty years of peace after the coup by Alberic. But then, in nine fifty four, the man himself, the Lord of Rome, died of dysentery. Now, the number of times I've heard and read as a big history nerd that a person or an army was stopped by dysentery makes me wonder how very different history would have been if they invented emodium a lot sooner. Anyway, before his death, Alberic had got the Roman nobles and clergy to swear that they would recognize his son Octavian as pope when the current pope Agapetus the Second, what a name, died. Soon enough, Octavian's father Alberic died, and very soon after that, very once again, conveniently soon, Agapetus also snuffed it. Most probably with help from Octavian. So, Octavian had inherited the administrative power of Rome from his father, and now, in the year nine fifty-five, he also became pope with the name, very original name, of John the Twelfth, uniting the spiritual and administrative power under one person once again. Now, one important fact to consider about John the Twelfth was his age. Indeed, having been born in nine thirty-seven, he was at the time of his succession to the throne of Saint Peter a venerable eighteen years old. Now, one might be thinking, "What a pious and responsible young man, giving up the pleasures of the material world to wear the cloth." And be the shepherd of the immortal souls of Christians everywhere. What a noble, self-sacrificing soul! Not at all, not a bit of it, not even close. We'll have to see what he got up to in the next episode. For now, let's be content with having set up the scene and introduced the characters for the start of an epic struggle between the papacy. And the empire, that is Pope John the Twelfth and Otto the First of Germany. Thank you very much to everyone, as always, for listening.、Uh, I'd really like to thank our first PayPal donor or donator, Teresa C, who is looking back on her Italian roots. Great to hear from you, and thanks again, Teresa.、Uh, thanks, as always, to our regular patron supporters, Sen, Sean, and Roberta. Uh, thanks also to Reg B, who has intervened on the Facebook page, posting two very interesting historical books of Bologna that are over a hundred years old, which would be great to see. Thanks very much, Reg, for getting in touch and posting those. As they have done, you can get in touch with us via email: hello at ahistoryofitaly dot com. At the same URL: ahistoryofitaly dot com. You can click through to our social media, look at the timelines, and some other stuff that can help you navigate our complicated history. So, once again, thanks to everyone very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Media.
Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sintiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.